Namaste. I have a very important and special guest, Aditi Banerjee. Aditi and I have known each other for a very long time since she was a law student in Yale, the Yale Law School. Uh, we, we go back quite a long ways. And uh, after her studies, she's had a phenomenal career as a corporate lawyer and a very solid uh, scholar. So we, I know her in her capacity as a scholar. So why don't you tell us how we met? Uh, how we met and how the whole thing has been from the point of view of your journey. Absolutely. It was a really life-changing uh, moment when, when we met for me. Uh, growing up in this country, I had faced a lot of Hindu phobia without knowing what it was. So, so you were born in this country? Yes. Okay. Chicago? Yes, okay. the suburbs of Chicago. So you were raised here? Born and raised here. Okay, and you experienced Hindu phobia? Yes. Okay. So I went to a very good public school, it was a very multicultural place, uh, Naperville is a very progressive area. Yet even despite all of that, in our world history classes and other classes, statements would be made about India. Uh, for example, a teacher brought in a news clipping that showed some plane had landed in a remote village in India and all the uh, native villagers had gone out to Garland the pilot and the, the, t the teacher was making fun of them, these primitive Indians, what are they doing? Things like that. But I never, until um, I was in law school and I read your articles on Suleika. So I remember I had written an article, you had commented on it, you had put the URL for your articles and I read them and it was just, it was transformative for me because all of these incidents that I thought were kind of random or I thought it was just me or I didn't realize what the deeper pattern in the system was. Then when I read your writings, I was like, oh, here's someone who really understands it, who can explain it, who's standing up to these, to these forces who are, who are putting down my tradition and my religion. So that was very life transforming for me. So that's 13, 14 years ago. Yes, that's, it's, been a, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want people to know that uh, a lot of people have entered the space of my work in various capacities, but they come and they go, or they come and then, then, then there's some issues Aditi is one of the very few who's consistently been there working alongside, working with me, helping me, uh, done some editing of some of my articles, you've done that, uh, and, and very consistent in her support. So this is a very uh, good ally for me. You've been a good ally for me. <laughs> in the same way for me, because I've been also involved with different organizations, different individuals, but I think over the decades, the one leader who has been consistent, stood on principles, and never sold out, and has always fought for us, has been, has been you. So that's why I've always been. Well, thank you. So your experience of uh, growing up and sporadically, once in a while, uh, here coming across a certain episode or a data point that would be Hindu phobic, but not having the whole framework to put it together. Mm -hmm. This is a very common experience. A lot of people, when they read my work or, or, or see something I'm framing, whether it's Hindu phobia, whether it's Breaking India, whether it's Being Different, any of those books, what they say is that you've sort of given clarity to our experience. We've had this experience, but we didn't see it this way. And now that we see it this way, it makes more sense. What we, now we can make sense of our own experiences and our own examples. And that's good, because I want to not put my experiences into their lives. 
I want their own experiences to make more sense for them. So I just want to give a framework. Before we met, uh, the Risa Leela articles had appeared on Zuleika. So I should tell people a little bit about that and then we continue the story. <coughs> I was writing for Suleika, which was an online portal in those days. And this uh, Risa Leela article series, couple of them, were to expose a whole lot of Hindu phobia going on, Freudian psychoanalysis going on about our tradition, which in a moment I think you should explain more about it, uh, who the culprits are and what all they're up to. <coughs> and you know, it's very interesting. There was a, the, the Suleika uh, uh, organization considered me the foremost blogger, the first you know, person who made them very popular, brought, I had more hits, more per people joining Suleika than any other writer had brought. Yet, when our opponents started complaining, when the Hindu phobic scholars started complaining, they went to, uh, they went to some of the advertisers and sponsors like uh, Citibank and New York Life who were sponsoring Suleika and started saying we'll be, we, that uh, having them threatened that they'll withdraw their support. So the owner, the CEO of Suleika, a guy named Prabhakar, I think his was last yes. name, he actually started blocking me. Uh, I, would, I was his main uh, contributor, but he would start putting uh, uh, opposing articles and not even give me a chance to respond. So he turned uh, kind of rogue. On, on us. And so that's when I moved out uh, over a period of time, I moved out. In fact, uh, Suleika wanted to take my collection of articles and turn them into a book. Mm. They wrote a book proposal to take my articles and they submitted it to Penguin. Mm. And they were in the process of discussing this with Penguin that this would be a Suleika publication of my articles on, uh, over there. But then they had some complaint again. So they withdrew from that project. Wow. Otherwise, a collection of my articles on Suleika concerning this whole issue would have appeared years ago. Right. After the burst of activity on Suleika with these Risa Lila articles and lots of people joined, Bal Gangadhar joined this movement as a result of my articles. And he came and visited here, stayed here with me. A whole lot of other people, Sankrant Sanu came and joined us. This was a big wake-up call for people who had not gotten involved in this. Uh, unfortunately, many of our Hindu leaders in North America didn't help. Uh, we have several organizations that are friends of ABC, some group in India, either they are political organizations or religious organizations. Their leaders in the United States did not understand this. They would say things like, we are 5,000 years old, we are a great civilization, why are you sensationalizing, why are you creating trouble? by raising issues and controversies which we don't have. We're doing very well, we're making money, we've got nice houses, our kids are going to good colleges. So let's, under the radar, quietly, let's just keep doing well. And I said, that doesn't work. Because the Jews were doing very well in Germany at one mm -hmm. time. And they also, under the radar, did not get into the social political discourse. And look what happened to them. It could happen to us. Right. And actually this whole flare up of uh, you know, white supremacy is a reminder yeah. that this can happen any time unless you take control of the discourse about who you are. Right. So the, the, I'm going back like uh, around the year 2000, in fact even before in the late 90s when I was writing these kind of things, most of the leaders in the United States, whether they were political um, Hindu kind of groups or religious groups, wanted nothing to do with me. 
later, when this became a very popular movement, they all wanted to control, to, to, to claim leadership. But at that time, when the pioneering work was to be done, when you had to stick your neck out and just, you know, take the heat and do some hard work, there was no support for me at that time. I, I just want people to know that. Then, uh, after that burst of articles, I moved on to other topics. I moved on to many, I'm writing many other books, so I, I moved on to other topics of research and kind of felt that we've made our point regarding this Hindu phobia issue. But then Martha Nussbaum introduced a book where I was one of the chap full chapters of a book was me. And this is very scary because uh, he's, she's writing this, she's a very famous person, a feminist, a University of Chicago, and she's sort of targeting me as a sort of a bad guy. Uh, so I went to Swami Dhyanand Saraswati hmm. and uh, uh, I asked for his help and I asked for his advice, what should I do? And he meditated for a while and came back and said to me that, look, they will not be able to do anything to you. You must keep fighting. And in fact, what you should do is you should write, put out your story in hmm. your book. Hmm. So that's when the idea came that, you know, even though Suleika is not putting out a collection of articles, we should put out a collection of articles. So we got various teams together to take these articles and not only my articles, but articles by other people and your articles and make a book out of it. So, so now tell us about the book that came. So here's, here's the book, Invading the Sacred, an Analysis of Hinduism Studies in America. And it is actually a, a co-edited volume with uh, Krishna Ramaswamy, Antonio D. Nicholas and, and myself. And this is a really unique book, um, as, as Rajiv mentioned, the, the story of it. But this is also the first book that has systematically documented and rebutted the Hindu phobia in, in, in academia. And it also showed how the community was awakened by a lot of the work that, that Rajiv uh, pioneered. And the community responds to these scholars. And also how these scholars are not just operating alone, they're all connected with each other and how they've created a system and a worldview and institutions that are really lined up against, uh, against Hindus. So this was really a pioneering work that I think led to a lot of the works and books that have followed. So, um, so we wanted to just walk through this and start with the, the cast of characters that are really featured prominently in this book and how they have attacked Hinduism in different ways. It's a list of who's who in the American Academy at that time. Yes. These are very powerful people. So why don't you tell them who some of these people are and what they wrote? Sure. So let's start with uh, Wendy Doniger, who is really the, the main figure or the mother of a lot of what uh, Reggie was called Wendy's children who have come along the way. And what we have to understand is this work is not impactful just for their own scholarship, but how it has led to future generations of, of scholarship that we're still dealing with today. So Wendy Donger is the Mircea Eliade Professor of History and Religion at the University of Chicago, one of the most influential persons in the study of religion. She's a former president of the American Academy of Religion and a past president of the Influential Association of Asian Studies. And uh, she has two PhDs, one from Harvard and one from Oxford. Uh, and her, her former graduate studies are now peppered all throughout the humanities. 
So once you have a scholar like this, it's not their own scholarship that's dangerous, but the type of scholarship they foster through their, through their students. Uh, as a BBC-linked site has put it, Professor Wendy Doniger is known for being rude, crude, and very lewd in the hallowed portals of Sanskrit academics. All her special works have revolved around the subject of sex in Sanskrit's texts. So, so Wendy is obviously a very powerful person, mm -hmm. and what she says will matter. Yes. So what all has she said that would disturb people or should? So there are just two examples, I think, that illustrate it head on. So the first is she once described, and this was in a Microsoft Encarta encyclopedia article about Hinduism. She once described Holi, which is a very uh, sacred festival for Hindus, uh, as a springtime celebration where people sprinkle colored powders on each other. And those colored powders most probably represent blood, which was used in the earlier years. So this is how she kind of tarnishes uh, one of the most sacred celebrations for Hindus. She has also called the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita uh, as a murderous, genocidal book. She has said the Gita is a dishonest book where Krishna uh, goads, goads people into uh, evil action, genocide, and, and killing. I'll tell you the story on that quote. Um, my children were going to Princeton Day School, so one of the things the fo our foundation did is to endow a whole section on Hinduism as part of their world religions. So we took some, uh, two of their teachers to Rishikesh so that they would understand and then students could go uh, during spring break. And we also wanted to gift them a collection of books. So I, uh, they were very happy about it. So I gave them a suggested list of books to buy. And these were books from all the different gurus, from you know major guru organizations. So naturally, there were many books from Ramakrishna Mission. And one day, I get a call from this teacher, worried, saying that uh, I have been told that some of the books on your list are inappropriate for young people. So I said, why? Why is that so? This he said that uh, some of those books are about Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. So I said, what's wrong? And he said, because isn't it true that uh, they had, there was this uh, allegations against them for improper sex and so on. Mm. So that is what got me interested uh, in this whole issue of the allegation. And then this teacher from the school was attending a talk by Wendy Doniger in Philadelphia. And uh, uh, in that talk she said, uh, the Gita is a dishonest book. So I wanted to see if there's any evidence of that before I put it in my Risalila article. And sure enough, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the following day, had a story about Wendy Doniger's talk in which she said the Gita is a dishonest book. That whole quote was in the Philadelphia Inquirer. So when I put it in my article, there were a lot of complaints from Wendy's camp that she never said it and whatnot and whatnot. So I said, well, she can retract it or she can argue with the Philadelphia Inquirer. But to this day, it's on their website on the Philadelphia Inquirer website. It's in their archive. Mm -hmm. It has never been retracted. And so that's the story of that quote. Mm -hmm. So they say things, and then if somebody complains, then they'll pretend they never said it. So yes. you have to be careful of uh, taking them at face value. Yes. And it's not just a question of one or two stray quotes here and there. It's an entire approach, the approach that she has taken and her students have taken, where Hinduism has very sexualized this Freudian psychoanalytic framework where everything has an erotic dimension, there's incest, there's weird sexuality, there's perversion. And 
while this may even be of interest as a, as a fringe uh, area of study, this has become the dominant discourse on, on Hinduism. So as I mentioned, uh, Doniger had the original entry on Hinduism in, in Microsoft Encarta, which is a resource for school children and, and the general public in learning about Hinduism. So these are the kinds of things you would, you would find. Then another is Jeffrey Kripal, and, and this goes back to what you were mentioning about Sri Ramakrishna and, and Swami Vivekananda. So Jeffrey Kripal actually did his PhD under the guidance of Doniger. And his dissertation was about Sri Ramakrishna, the founder or the, uh, the spiritual figure behind the Ramakrishna mission. And for his dissertation, he actually went to Bengal to the Ramakrishna mission to take help from them. But he never, when he finished his dissertation, he never vetted it by uh, any of the Swamis that he worked with and he never checked his work with them. And he was actually criticized for this. And then, based on his dissertation, he published a book called Kali's Child. And this book won the first book award from the American Academy of Religion. And Encyclopedia Britannica listed this book as its top choice for learning about Ramakrishna. So you can imagine how important it is. And much of his thesis was based on mistranslations of Bengali writings. And when he presented his dissertation, actually the sole Bengali language expert on his committee was absent. So this book, which is obviously so important in the study of Sri Ramakrishna, what does it actually say? Kripal's thesis in his own words is that Ramakrishna was a conflicted, unwilling, homoerotic tantrika. His female tantric guru and temple boss may have forced themselves on the saint, but Ramakrishna remained a lover, not of sexually aggressive women or even of older men, but of young, beautiful boys. And he goes on to say that this homoeroticism, this molestation of Swami Vivekananda and other young boys who came to the Ramakrishna mission, that was not just some side aspect of Ramakrishna's psyche, that the very foundation of the Ramakrishna movement, his spiritual experiences, his spiritual realizations, in other words, the very uh, Hinduism that Swami Ramakrishna, uh, that Sri Ramakrishna taught and, uh, and experienced was false and based on sexual perversion and molestation of, of young boys. And actually, one of the examples of Hindu phobia I'd come across before, uh, before reading your writings was in college where this kind of an accusation or this kind of an allegation was brought up. And it was so extreme and horrifying to me that I did not even know how, how to respond. And I think uh, in, in our culture, we're, we're, we're taught to defer to our teachers and to respect our teachers and professors. So even though as a child, I had a picture of Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda, Sharada Devi in my bedroom, I would, I would worship them. I read all of Swami Vivekananda's books. Despite all of that, when I came across this kind of accusation, it was really world-shaking because I thought a professor is, this, is saying this, a college professor who has studied so much and should know so much. So have I, just, have I, been, have I been wrong all my life? So this is the kind of power that these academics have. The doubt have. they can put in young people. Yes. Because they have authority. They have, we've given them the adhikar by mistake. Right, yeah. right. And at that time, we didn't have anything on, on the other side. So this is the kind of impact that, that they have. And actually, it would be one thing if these kinds of accusations or these kinds of 
fantasies or delusions were based on anything, if there was scholarly rigor behind them. Then you can reach conclusions we may not like, but we would say, yes, this is genuine scholarship and we have to confront it one way or the other. But this was all just speculation, not based on anything. Um, it was said that the, the translations that Kreifel used in coming up with this work were based not even on the primary or secondary meanings of Bengali words in the dictionary, but just some really speculative, loose translations of the language. He was not a Bengali expert, and he really saw in the, the works on Ramakrishna what he wanted to see rather than what was there. So I think this brings up a very interesting point. The whole postmodernist methodology says you can pick and choose. Uh, one of their famous words, famous statements is the author is dead, which means whoever wrote, whoever wrote the original text is gone, is irrelevant. We today can interpret it for our purposes. We can give it the meaning. So the author in our system, in our tradition, when you interpret Shastra, you want to look for what was the author's intention. Mm -hmm. With what intention was this written? Uh, the postmodernist says the author is dead and his intention is irrelevant. We, we impose or we uh, uh, project on it uh, the, our, our intention or our purpose. So if our purpose is Hinduphobia, we look for that. If our purpose is to say that there is exploitation, there is oppression, there is social injustice, we look for that. Even though we may be doing a cut and paste and bringing things together, people get away with it. And, and the, the postmodernist uh, approach allows that. It's very difficult to argue. And if you argue against it, uh, they'll call you chauvinist and so on. Right. So they, that was the, so really behind the whole Wendy and her children methodology is we need, we, we have to have a critique of postmodernism. Yes. Because Freudian, Freudian approach is, is a part of, is an, out of the postmodernist era. Right. And our challenge therefore isn't really just about what is said about Hinduism, but it's about the very frameworks and methods of yes. Western scholarship yes. and how that's different from nowadays. We don't even know our own traditional uh, scholarship and the, the methodologies, the hermeneutics that we use for preserving the text that we've preserved for thousands of years with yes. continuity of meaning, yes. uh, even across the different philosophical systems or darshanas. There's a common understanding of how the text should be, should be read. I think the glamour and the aura of Western Indology is so huge in the eyes of Indians, even today, that uh, because somebody from a Harvard or Columbia or Chicago said something, it's considered to be, wow, this is good because this guy is saying it. And so we've, we, we're kind of colonized. Our view of ourselves is pretty colonized. Yes. And, and we'll come to that later, what we are supposed to do about it now. Right. We'll give more deference to a Harvard PhD than to our own panditas. Yes. That is, that is sad, yeah. So there's uh, more, more people that are, sure. that are featured in this book. One is Paul Courtright from the Department of Religion at Emory University. And he had written a book on, on Ganesha, which again was, a, was an award-winning book and very influential in the academic discourse. And in Courtright's view, uh, what he said was, from a psychoanalytic perspective, there is meaning in the selection of the elephant head. Again, this is about Ganesha. Its trunk is the displaced phallus, a caricature of Shiva's linga. It poses no threat because it is too large, flaccid, and in the wrong place to be useful for sexual purposes. Ganesha remains celibate so as not to compete erotically with his father, 
a notorious womanizer, either incestuously for his mother or for any other woman for that matter. Ganesha is like a eunuch guarding the women of the harem. And just to unpack this, because there are so many horrible things being said here, what Portwright is saying is that Ganesha's elephant head, his elephant trunk, is a representation of Shiva's linga, Shiva's phallus, is, is, is how he thinks of Shiva's linga, and uh, Ganesha competing with his father erotically for the interests of his own mother. And this is the kind of Freudian psychoanalytic approach that Portwright, Doniger, and others, uh, others bring. And actually, the foreword for this book was written by, by Doniger herself. So you start to see these interconnections between the different, the different people. And this, I think, had a really, this really fired up the community when they saw this. Because again, this wasn't just left behind in some academic books that no one reads. Uh, this, was, this was a resource book, and there was actually a museum exhibit in Baltimore in a prominent art gallery that had an exhibit on Ganesha, and they had an 11th century statue of Ganesha, and they actually had a, a postcard there that referenced Courtright's work and said that Ganesha's pot belly and his childlike love for sweets mock Shiva's practice of austerities, and his limp trunk will forever be a poor match for Shiva's erect phallus. So just imagine if you're a child, you're going on a school trip to a museum, you go, you think, here's an exhibit on Ganesha, this is going to be so nice, and then this is what you read. And this is the kind of psychological impact that just decades or this long history of Hindu phobia has had on us without us even realizing it. Besides our people, imagine the impact on a regular white American kid mm -hmm. who goes to see this, and this is what he thinks his classmate who's a Hindu is all about. Right. So the mainstream, the non-Indians view of who we are and our culture is shaped by such things. Yes. That's pretty bad. It's, 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 it's yeah. horrible. Yeah. And this was interesting is Ganesha is such a beloved deity for Hindus that I think when, when our community saw, saw this, this they really took to, took to heart and there was a very large community reaction against Courtright's work, uh, going to Emory University, protesting. Uh, actually, a side effect of this was that in 2003, Oxford University Press actually reprinted the book uh, because of this firestorm of controversy around it. They can sell more books. Yes. There were protests at Emory University. Uh, some group of people there went and uh, led this protest. Uh, it was, you know, the academic people said this is academic freedom. So it became an issue not of truth, authenticity, good scholarship as the criteria, but hey, it's our freedom to say all this. And so if you protest, then you are interfering with intellectual freedom. That's the strange thing. However, my response was that fine, I'm ex ex exercising my intellectual freedom by writing these critiques and waking up the community. And that was considered you're attacking the scholars. Okay. So our intellectual freedom is seen as we are attacking the scholars, we're creating controversy, and their attacks on our deities are seen as their intellectual freedom, okay. a double standard. And there was no taking into account the actual impact this was ha having on uh, the Hindu students, on, on American students, and how this could lead towards hostility towards the Hindu community. And this is in contrast to what you see going on with Islamophobia today. 
and how much universities, schools are very adamant about protecting the interests of Muslim students and making sure they don't feel alienated or there isn't negative portrayals of Islam or the Muslim community. But then we don't have the same consideration or respect when it comes to Hindus. And about that time, uh, Infinity Foundation negotiated with a, mag a magazine called Education About Asia that goes to about 20,000 school children, school uh, teachers. Uh, and it's by the uh, Association for Asian Studies. So we negotiated a huge grant to uh, uh, give our side of the, uh, you know, uh, India studies and Hinduism studies. And we had articles by Bob Thurman and Arvind Sharma and Yvette Rosser and Madhu Kishwar and a lot of people we brought in. And we had to pay a huge sum of money to this uh, magazine to uh, do a special issue where good, solid, well-known academicians would write from our point of view. Of course, the other point of view, they don't have to pay to get their, you know, articles in. I mean, I, our foundation at that time spent in the six figures in dollars mm. to get that special issue. Uh, so, but that was just one issue out of so many issues that are going on uh, all the time with the other side. Mm -hmm. So that's how asymmetric the dialogue was. We had to work very hard and pay for it just to get our story in. Right. And uh, the next one we should talk about is, is David Gordon White. Uh, he, he received his PhD in the history of religion from the University of Chicago. And he had a book, Kiss of the Yogini, about Tantra. And this is a, a dangerous new front, and we're seeing more and more of this in, in Hinduism studies, which is the delinking of certain popular movements from Hinduism. So he talks about Tantra and he delegitimizes Tantra as a Hindu spiritual practice and tradition. His basic position is that there were these uh, widespread sexual practices that were extreme in India, particularly by the subalterns who were oppressed by the, by the Brahmanas. And therefore, so that, that was really the basis of, of Tantric practice. There wasn't this spiritual type of dimension to it until the British came. And when the British came, uh, the upper caste Hindus were feeling ashamed of their traditions, feeling ashamed of these wild sex practices. So they sought to put an intellectual gloss over it and make them uh, pseudo-spiritual and, and Hindu to try to gloss over uh, what the actual meaning of Tantra was. And so White's whole project is to delink Hinduism and Tantra and to reclaim, in, in, his, in his view and in Doniger's view, who again uh, endorsed the book and, um, and, and was, had a very favorable review of it, and to say that basically to protect Indian culture from these uh, tyrannical upper caste Hindus, we have to show that these things were originally not Hindu. And we see this happening now with, like the, with the yoga movement, with Sanskrit, with other things where Hinduism itself is reduced to the, these Brahmins, these evil Brahmins who are trying to oppress uh, the, the lower caste and it's left to the Western scholars to come in and rescue Indian culture and Indian civilization from these evil, evil Brahmins. The caste cows and curry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that it's reduced to the caste cows and curry. Right. Yeah. And you've made the point very well that this type of revisionism 
when the Western scholars are doing it, it's something heroic. They're right. coming in, they're speaking for the authentic Hindus and authentic Indians. But when Indians or Hindus try to look back on their history and re reinterpret it in a positive way, that's considered chauvinism right. and fascism that has to be guarded against. Right. So the postmodernist idea that contemporary drishti, contemporary vision, contemporary scholarship uh, can overrule the traditional interpretation by superimposing what it means to us today. That idea which the postmodernists practice, we the practicing Hindus aren't able, aren't allowed to do that ourselves. We aren't able to, we aren't allowed to say, okay, here is the modern meaning, how we want to reinterpret our tradition for our own purpose. When we do it, we are considered chauvinist. Uh, so if we talk about Vedic science or if we talk about Vedic mathematics or we talk about how modern physics and modern biology are compatible and in some ways anticipated in the Vedic tradition, we are accused of all these things. But when the Westerners want to reinterpret our texts with a, in a negative social message, with a negative social or political message to show oppression, well that kind of a reinterpretation is considered cool. Right. It gets you awards. Yes. Yeah. And one more thing I want to say about David Gordon White is that he explains the meaning of the bindi, uh, which is the, the, the dot that uh, many Hindu women wear, as representing the drop of menstrual blood that was uh, originally used, which harkens back to what Doniger said about the celebration of holy and the use of blood. But now he says that about uh, about the bindi which so many Hindu women wear. And actually I wear a bindi to the office every day and I've often wondered how people would feel if some, uh, someone else had read this book or someone knew of this interpretation and thought I was wearing uh, menstrual blood on my, on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you being a smart lawyer will sue the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah? Okay, good. So they dare not say that to you. Right. Good. And, uh, one more thing that I, I want to mention. So in, in the book, we don't just document what these scholars say about us, what they say about Hinduism, but we also reverse the gaze and we do an analysis of them. So many of these psychoanalytic uh, scholars who use these frameworks have their own histories of troubled mental, emotional, psychological issues. And a lot of that ends up coming into play as they're looking into, into, into Hinduism. They see kind of projections of, of what they are. And if they're going to use that kind of psychoanalytical uh, framework on us, it's only fair that we use that, we use that on them. So it's, it's a sort of voyeurism. In other words, fantasy. So if the person has this weird fantasy of, uh, because of their own disturbances and they want to playfully explore uh, possibilities, speculate them, they can do it with Hinduism safely because it's, it, nobody's going to take them to task. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do that with Christianity. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do that with their own tradition because people will take them to task. Mm -hmm. So until we came around and started taking them to task, these guys had a free, you know, free for all. They could just get away with anything. And, and sort of uh, playfully or, or out of uh, trauma, their own personal trauma, project whatever they wanted on this alien, weird, exotic tradition. Mm -hmm. Right. And one, the one more example I'd like to provide of that is, uh, is Sarah Caldwell, who won the prestigious Robert Stoller Award for her scholarship on the Hindu goddess. And in an award-winning paper called The Bloodthirsty Tongue and the Self-Feeding Breast, 
homosexual fellatio fantasy in a South Indian ritual tradition. This is what Caldwell says of Kali. She is herself, first of all, a phallic being, the mother with a penis. She is the bloodied image of the castrating and menstruating, thus castrating female. So again, you see how these people's own troubles are, are, are projected into their depictions of, of Devi and our, our deities and, and sacred figures. And what happens is it's not just an assortment of attacks on individual deities and individual spiritual figures. It becomes a wholesale attack on Hinduism and delegitimizing Hinduism as a religious and spiritual tradition. Here I want to point out that actually Sarah Caldwell mentions and confesses that she was traumatized with her own childhood. She had all these kind of things happen to her, some of these things happened to her and she was in a, in a trauma and so the Hindu material, the Hindu writings gave her raw material that she could put together and, and frame in this way, uh, sort of, uh, you know, like Play-Doh, you play around and make different things out of it. So Hinduism is sort of, for them, uh, an open opportunity to do whatever they want. In fact, she, was, she said she was expressing her own, she was actually involved in her own traumas while she was writing mm -hmm. this. But of course, the reader doesn't know that. The reader, okay. as far as the reader is concerned, this is an award-winning paper on Hinduism. Yes. And similarly, Jeffrey Kripal, whom you talked about earlier, has in other works written about his own struggles with homosexuality. He says he wanted to become a, a, a Catholic monk at one time. He went to the seminary to become that. But he was struggling with his homosexuality and his uh, whatever was happening with his life. He couldn't continue with that uh, life. He couldn't continue with pursuing a whole life of that. So he dropped out of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are troubled people in some cases. And it is fair for us to analyze, psychoanalyze them if, they, if it is fair for them to psychoanalyze our deities. Right. Yes. And you see, when they psychoanalyze see Ramakrishna or Vivekananda or any guru or any god, goddess, anyone, deva, devati, they, 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 they think it's okay because they're entitled to it. When I start psychoanalyzing them in my works, they think I'm attacking them. Right. So they put themselves higher than our deities in terms of uh, uh, authority. Yes. And there are ways, of positive ways they could engage with Hinduism through yoga, through meditation, to deal with these, uh, these traumas. But instead of doing that, they just uh, attack and negatively tarnish our, our tradition. And one other thing I want to, before I forget, uh, David White, the person you mm -hmm. quoted earlier regarding Tantra, he's continued writing similar books. So he's written a book on sinister yogis. So in a more recent book where he says that yoga traditionally was not about, uh, about enlightenment. It was not about uh, what, uh, what we think from the yoga sutras. But these yogis were actually suppressed. They had a lot of suppressed anger, violence, sexuality in them. And, and they were sinister. Yeah. He's got his whole theory on these yogis were not nice people. And he has collaborated with some other people, other Western scholars, to come up with this revised history of yoga, that yoga is not some kind of an ancient thing from India with the Vedantin kind of objectives and goals that we think it is. So a whole, uh, and he was, until we started calling out the problem, he was revered by Hindus. He was put on a pedestal. Sarah Corwell was the head of the Hinduism unit in the American Academy of Religion. Mm. And uh, hoisted up as a big champion of Hinduism. Because the same scholar who writes like this, 
also knows the hot buttons of average Indians and Hindus, how to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. So Wendy Doniger was felicited every year in Chicago's largest Hindu temple and given honorariums for, for gracing the occasion and she would come in her sari and she would uh, do all kinds of stuff and people would be so excited that she's praising us. Right. So the, they know how to praise in, a, in, a, in the right forum and they know how to bring us down in a different forum. Yes. So this is, this is why even today when I point out such examples, people say, no, 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 so-and-so is very good. So Sheldon Pollock, he came in a dhoti, he had a tilak and he speaks such beautiful Sanskrit. And I tell them, yes, but ever since the time of William Jones and all the anthropologists that, that the British sent, they have studied the language, they've worked very hard, mm -hmm. they know how to disguise themselves, infiltrate and be like as Hindu as anybody. And at the same time, what is really in their heart and in their agenda has to be uh, has to be studied by looking at their deeper writings. And this is a problem with our community because we can become easily swayed by photo ops and like nice platitudes. Even uh, Indian Americans are such large contributors in the political sphere. Yeah. But we never ask for an agenda. We don't care about the politician's agenda. We just want a photo op. So if someone says something nice, we think, oh, this is this is good enough. And uh, we don't bother to look at the underlying agenda or what's That's really happening. That's a deep inferiority complex. Yes. Uh, basically that as long, uh, the, moment they, the moment the dominant culture accepts me, has some nice things to say about me, I am so happy. I'll just write my check and, uh, you know, endorse them and glorify them and so on just because they're saying nice things about me. <laughs> and, and very senior people, including government ministers have told me, Oh, no, no, we'll only support those who praise us. And I said, that's not what matters. It's not that they praise you. Yeah. You've got to go deep beneath the surface and see what's the framework they're using. Yes. Of course, they'll come and praise you. Yes. I go to India and, and talk about some of the scholars, some of the Western scholars and the Hindu phobia. And uh, they listen to me and they support my, what I'm saying. But then they come to me privately and say, you know, but he also comes and he gives us books. He gives us gifts and he praises us and he sits with us and he eats food, eats with his hands, you know, uh, the point is that the Westerners know how to do that. Right. Yes. And that's an old British, old British uh, European anthropology perfection of infiltrating the natives and, you know, being accepted as one of them, which the Americans have perfected even further. Mm -hmm. And we have seen how our own people have become co-opted yes. into many of these initiatives and yes. these agendas. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And one thing that we really need to state is uh, you know, there's a lot of shoddy scholarship in, in what these scholars have, have been doing. But when it comes to Hinduism, Buddhism, the Dharma traditions, the, the concept of Adhikara is so important. And part of the Adhikara is also having that spiritual purity or Antakarna Shuddhi, without which you really cannot understand the Shastras or our traditions or our spiritual practices. And so we can't accept just this Western framework that's based on quoting each other, quoting this cartel of academics and saying that legitimizes their study without thinking in, in our tradition, going back to our tra tradition and understanding what our qualifications and criteria are. This is a very important point you've raised. Uh, the Western idea of authority and competence as a scholar does not require the inner transformation. It does not require. There is no requirement for shraddha, there is no requirement for yoga, for meditation, for practice, for living a certain lifestyle. Whereas in our, in our case, you would not, unless you achieve that kind of purity, you would not even be initiated into the text. You would not even be qualified to, talk, to be taught that text because you will get it wrong and you will do all kinds of mischief, which is what is happening. But in the West, 
you know, you, you, you study the text, you study the, the, the hermeneutics, the Western methodologies for interpreting alien religions. Uh, and as long as you can pass the exams and quote every, the right people and understand the Western theories, not, not our Siddhantas, but the Western theories and apply them properly, you are qualified. And so, and when you get enough papers, enough publications out that are peer reviewed by your own peers, uh, you go up and up the ladder in terms of your authority and that's how authority is built. It, so the Western criteria for who's authorized to be a scholar is not consistent with our criteria. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who are from a Pakshala, who are highly qualified according to us, very, very learned Shastris and Pandits and practitioners, would not be qualified to get a job as a professor mm -hmm. in an Ivy League to teach Hinduism because they don't have a Western style PhD. Mm -hmm. So rather than us saying, okay, we will succumb to that, and we will use their criteria and their yardstick as to whether we are qualified or not. We have to fight it. We have to say, okay, we are unqualified according to your criteria, but you're unqualified according to our criteria. Mm -hmm. So now whose criteria matters? Well, it's our tradition. It's our tradition. And you can say what you have a freedom of speech to say whatever you want, but we have the freedom to disown it and right. to say that this is not at all authentic. Yeah. So I think that's the battle right. rather than succumbing to their demands that we have to be qualified uh, under their credentials, uh, we have to say we just don't care about that. Yes, absolutely. So the uh, issue of adhikar is important. Mm -hmm. Whose criteria for authority? Right. Then one, one more quote. This is from Jack Hawley, the professor of Hinduism at Barnard College and Columbia University. And he has said, Hinduism, the word and perhaps the reality too, was born in the 19th century, a notorious illegitimate child. The father was middle-class British and the mother, of course, was India. The circumstances of conception are not altogether clear. And this is a quote from his article, Naming Hinduism in the Wilson Quarterly in 1991. So you see this kind of offensive language used towards, towards India and Hinduism calling it, in effect, a, a bastard re religion. And you know, my book, Indra's Net, takes on this whole issue of what they call neo-Hinduism, meaning that Hinduism uh, was a fabrication of Swami Vivekananda. That is what essentially he said. Yes. That in the British era, this was, a, this was made up, has nothing to do with the ancient tradition, ha, is, a, is a kind of British-inspired and kind of jointly made by uh, anglicized Indians and British people. They made up this, this whole new thing called Hinduism. And in this, uh, all the writings about uh, neo-Hinduism, they criticize Swami Chinmayanand mm -hmm. as, a, as a person who just completely made up a fake thing and started propagating it. Mm -hmm. They criticize Sri Aurobindo, they criticize Swami Vivekananda, they criticize all the, the whole, uh, the whole, uh, what we now, the, the, the main forces, the main, uh, you know, movements that comprise Hinduism today are all delegitimized under that theory. Right. So therefore this, it was very important for me to write a response to that, and that's why I wrote Indra's Net. Right. And this is a very sinister ploy by them, because by bringing the British into it, then Doniger, David Gordon White, these others, they can say, oh, see, we're really rescuing you from this colonial past and history. Yes. And that's why Sheldon Pollock very proudly says that I hate the Orientalists. I, I'm against the Orientalists because they were doing all these kind of things, and they were patronizing and all that. Of course, he is Orientalism 2.0. Right. Uh, so that's the point I'm making. Yes. That while he is criticizing the Orientalists of the British era, he is valorizing the Orientalists of the American era. Mm 
mm -hmm. which is done in a very subtle way. Right. And Indians aren't sufficiently involved to be able to pick up this nuance. Yes. That the person who is here heroically saving you from past oppression is a more sophisticated oppressor. Right. And that's why you have to understand the whole history of the scholarship, these schools of Indology, to understand how they're morphing, but still staying true to the, to the old theses. Yes, yes, yes. I think one of the nice things in this, in this, uh, in this book uh, is that uh, uh, there are uh, two page, one page, two page kind of cartoons, comics, comics, uh, sort of enacting these stories in classrooms. And there's a, there's a interesting history of this. I was in Bangalore with a friend of mine and her daughter goes to, uh, uh, at that time uh, was going to uh, one of the well-known uh, design schools, design colleges. And so we were sitting having coffee and there was this young man sitting at a table nearby sketching something yeah. and I didn't know what he's doing. But afterwards he came and he had sketched us, you know, talking and all that, made a little kind of a comics thing. I was so impressed by his skill, very quickly done it. So uh, that's when I engaged this fellow to do this. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I wish I could find him and uh, have him work on my other books because he's very talented, but I don't know what happened to him. I would send him a little story and little clips, a little, uh, you know, like a screenplay, frame one, frame two, frame three, this is what's mm -hmm. going on. And he would quickly overnight do all this and send it back to me. So this is, this added uh, another kind of controversy. A lot of people said that uh, this will make the book kind of less academic, less serious, but I think actually it helped quite a bit. Absolutely. It makes it resonate more because as you read this, we know, oh, we've gone through kind of similar <laughs> types of experiences. It brings a little humor, yeah. but it also resonates, I think, with what uh, the community's experience actually has been. And, and when you poke fun at these guys, they don't like it. And, they, <laughs> and therefore it's important to poke fun at them. Bring yeah. them down in the sense that you're just regular people, we can make fun of you. That's why humor is, is so important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have been very consistent and not been afraid to speak very courageously like you just did at events, in conferences, in writings. And I, I'm very appreciative of that. I just wish we had more people like you who are uh, pretty straight in calling all this. Now, since 15 years since you've gotten involved in this, things have changed. And things have changed in in many ways for the better, in the sense that would you agree that there's a lot more awareness now among mm -hmm. our people? Yes. And the Western Indologists and Hindu phobics are kind of on the defensive. Yeah. So they don't, they realize they won't just get away with it. It's not as blatant as it used to be. Right. So on the one hand, we can celebrate victory that we pushed back the Wendy's children and other groups like that. But on the other hand, we did not create a home team to continue this work. So what happened is for a few years, there was no Wendy Doniger and her people known. They weren't around. They were just in hiding. But then the Indian left brought them back into India. Mm -hmm. And her books, which had retreated in the Western Academy, became popular in India. So they started, republi they started publishing her ideas in, in India now. And the Indian Hindu phobics, they were able to export Hindu phobia to the Indian mm -hmm. left. So now it is Indian Hindu phobics championing people like Wendy Doniger. And really, we did not have a home team, competent scholars in, uh, home, uh, comprising a home team to uh, be our, uh, to be able to safeguard us. There was a vacuum created. 
the old regime of when these people were kicked out, but our people weren't there to get in. Mm -hmm. So there's nobody. It was unclaimed. And this territory of Hinduism studies entered India with Western uh, material. Mm -hmm. Western material entered India. So um, I think the lesson learned is that it's not enough to just beat them, but we've got to replace them with our own people. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are now trying in, in, in this new battle. Uh, I recently had the battle for Sanskrit with Sheldon Pollock and the whole neo-orientalism. Uh, I wrote one book, convinced the Shingeri Shankaracharya to not fund these chairs that they wanted, yes. uh, created a huge controversy, paid the price myself because people came after me, but that's fine. I'm not really bothered. However, that's not enough. So now we are creating a home team and we've had two conferences. We'll be publishing eight volumes of uh, materials where I don't, I haven't written even a single page. It's other scholars who are writing all this. 50 scholars writing eight volumes, which will come out now very soon. This is, this is our home team. So now it's not easy for the Pollock camp to come back just because I move on. They cannot say, okay, Rajiv moved on to some other topic and we'll come back. Because there's 50 scholars now and eight volumes and they have to respond to that. Mm -hmm. So we didn't do that kind of a thing for the Wendy Doniger. I think this is the, the second phase of it. I think the first phase of it with invading the sacred, the silica articles and afterwards uh, was really bringing a change in the consciousness, the awareness. And I think you brought paradigms and a vocabulary into it with, with breaking India, being different, the uh, non-translatables, things like that. So that people began understanding the problem. And now we're at the stage where we can't, it's not enough for us to understand it and to know what's wrong with these institutions, what's wrong with this type of scholarship. We actually have to now go into the field and then dismantle and, and replace that scholarship with, with what, what is the proper scholarship. So I think this is the next right, step, building right. on what sure. work is So we done. are going to, so what, I, what we did is towards that, uh, last year we came out with this academic Hindu phobia, which is basically the original Suleika articles, the ones from 2001 onwards. Repacked, you know, put together, edited with a little bit new stuff, and uh, uh, republished. Uh, so this is this is revived the conversation. Now the reason is we want to we want to create now a conference, just like we had the conference on the Pollock issue. We now want to create a conference, one or even a series of conferences on academic Hinduphobia, and uh, uh, we want uh, you to be one of the leaders. You, we want you to be giving the academic direction uh, and create this kind of a conference where we'll invite papers from many people uh, and tell us what are some of the topics you think we ought to have in this conference so that good papers can come, then we can publish these papers. And now we want to take control of the discourse rather than leave a vacuum for other people. Okay. So what are some of the uh, Hindu phobia topics you feel we should invite people to send us papers for? Yes. So we want this to be very comprehensive and wide ranging. So now, for example, we see Hindu phobia, how it is in America, the West, the diaspora, versus how it is in, in India. And part of it is what's going on in the universities, what's happening with Sanskrit studies, what's happening with Indology, but then also what's going on in school textbooks. Because a lot of what starts in the ivory tower filters down into what our children are being taught at school, even in the general education textbooks. So uh, how is that happening 
in the US, which has its own challenges with, with textbooks, and then also in India, which has different challenges with textbooks and how history is taught in the schools and, and the curriculum. And so what we want is papers on this that also are not just, just papers about what the problem is, but that proposes actual um, action plans and how we can change this going forward, because now we ha we're developing this home team of scholars and activists who can actually take this forward and institute a meaningful long-term change. So uh, there's universities as a center, as a site for Hinduphobia that mm -hmm. we have to counter. There's schools. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also media. Yes. There's a huge amount of media that we have to combat. Right. We have to now uh, have papers on Hinduphobia in the media. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, foreign service. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting. I've given some talks to the in the Foreign Service Institute in Delhi, and these are diplomats. And some of them are kind of shy or scared or uh, don't want to talk about these issues. And I've had a very strange experience in the United States with consulates where, you know, I was invited in Houston to have a debate with a Christian theologian, which is a very popular debate on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Indian consul general who officially came to host and started kind of quietly slipped out because it was not, it was too hot for him. Hmm. To, so I think our external affairs has not quite taken this on as a right. topic yes. that we have to take on. Uh, our, our, we have this uh, ICCR, uh, Indian Council of Cultural Relations, and they own the Nehru centers, but they're not really combating this sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they are doing more sort of safe, uh, non-controversial safe topics. Right. But to retake uh, you know, a space that has been captured, you have to fight. I mean, it's not, they're not going to pack their bags and go away on their own. Right. So you have to catch. So yes. there is that space. Then there's also, I would say, Hindu phobia in a lot of uh, government policies in India. Mm -hmm. Temples are controlled. Right. Temples are controlled. Hindu temples are controlled by the government, but not uh, churches aren't controlled. Mosques aren't controlled right. in a way. Gurudwaras aren't controlled. So this is also a kind of Hindu phobia. Yeah, and this onslaught on the celebration of Diwali or, or Holi, you have to celebrate it you know, in, a, in a green way so you don't right. use colors, you don't have the, the firecrackers, things like that, uh, uh, for Ganesh Chaturthi and things like that. There's this one-sided attack on it. Somehow it's just Hindu celebrations that are environmentally right. bad or, or loud or disturbing to the community, but all the other religious festivals are, are not. So this double standard. There have been many states that have introduced anti-superstition laws, which are very much aimed at That's a very big Hindu issue. Uh, in the Hindu phobia conference, you should invite those kind of papers also. Yes. Where uh, there are, there is, it's a question of, and you being a lawyer, you should also look at, you know, legally, is mm. there Hindu phobia? Is yes. there Hindu phobia in the law, in the constitution, and, and, and uh, asymmetric or uh, uh, kind of uh, unfair laws? Mm -hmm. So when they, when they say anti-superstition, very clearly they've exempted minority religions. Right. So when a priest, when a Christian priest goes and does faith healing and he does all kind of weird things and all that, that's not superstition. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, after all, if they applied the criteria of superstition being anything that you cannot scientifically prove, then you cannot prove that Moses parted the ocean. Mm -hmm. You cannot prove somebody had a virgin birth. Uh, you cannot prove that some prophet went up to the paradise from a certain place. You cannot prove any of the primary claims of the Abrahamic religions mm -hmm. on science. Right. So if superstition is anything that you cannot prove on science, 
then if you were to apply it uniformly to all the religions, you would have to be, you go after all of them. Right. But so it's very careful that these anti-superstition laws are only applied to Hinduism. Yes. It's a very, uh, people haven't made enough of an issue out of this. Yeah, and this ties into, you'll see in a lot of the Hindi movies, the, uh, the Hindu priest is always corrupt, yes. fat, uh, you know, tr trying to, you know, evil kind of yeah. uh, caricature. He, he's the problem and some other religious person is a solution. Right, or very the nice Christian guy. priest or the, nice the mullahs is always a very helpful, pious yeah. person. Yeah. But it's always the Hindu priest or the Hindu holy man who's out defrauding people. And these kinds of stereotypes percolate in people's minds and that also ties into how, how I think the laws and the governmental institutions discriminate. Also, you know, you could talk in, within Hindu phobia, you could also talk about uh, Hindu uh, sacred sites that were hijacked by mm. uh, invaders. Yes. Uh, whether it's Ayodhya, whatever, th though that is a part of Hindu phobia. Right. Because the fact that this Hindu phobia happened, you know, hundreds of years ago, doesn't yes. mean it's, it's, it's okay. Right. Uh, we, it doesn't mean we sort of accept it right. and say that's the new normal. Right. I mean, you look at here, they are trying to get rid of Confederate statues, yes. Confederate monuments, yes. because while it's a part of history, but we don't have to glorify that. Right. 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 So why not apply the same standard in India and say wherever there were foreign invaders who came, took slaves, killed our native people, took our sites and turned them into their uh, their religious sites or their monuments. Well, we should we should at least at least be open to a debate. I'm not yes. saying that tomorrow morning people should go and take those over. I'm saying we should start a conversation. Right. We should start a healthy conversation in intellectual forums where people can come from various sides and argue uh, what should happen to uh, monuments of that sort. And it's not even uh, it's not even history. Just recently in Kashmir in Srinagar, there was a Shankaracharya Hill, a very famous uh, site for where Shankaracharya had established a temple. Now that's been renamed Suleiman Hill and, and things like that. So there's the, the history of it and then there's the, the rewriting of our, of our sacred sites that's going on today. So this is, so Hindu phobia is a huge topic. Yes. I mean, and, and, and I think we should not feel that, okay, uh, my Suleika articles and then this book Invading the Sacred and then this other book Academic Hindu Phobia kind of done the job and we f move on. I think we have to keep this conference series going. Yes. And we have to get more and more people into it, put out the proceedings of these conferences, produce more books, because right. the Hindu phobia, which is the climax, which is the result of centuries of uh, neglect by us mm -hmm. and oppression by other people, is not going to be reversed very quickly. Mm -hmm. And this has got to be a generational program. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very happy that we have Aditi uh, in the, in the, at the helm of this. And I really want you to be sort of the leader of this whole Hindu phobia uh, academic discourse. Yeah, I would love to. It'll be, yeah. it'll be exciting. I'm looking forward to us working. working so we have, a, we have one conference in December, IIT Madras, mm -hmm. which is on this refuting this whole Aryan Dravidian thing. Uh, after that, the 2018 calendar is open. So we should put the Hindu phobia topic and make it a feature, make it a major theme of the 2018 activities in India. Absolutely. And just one point I would like to make about Hindu phobia and how we define and think of it. So Hindu phobia is not just what other people think about us or other people's aversion towards that, the concept of Hindu or, or Hinduism. It's something that has been deeply internalized by, by ourselves. And it's the inferiority complex that we have where we do not like to call ourselves Hindu. So for example, when I was applying to college in, in one of the essays I'd written that I'm a proud Hindu and I know 
my, my mother was worried about in terms of how will that be perceived by the admissions com committee and, and things like that. And so often we say we're, we're Indian or we're spiritual, but we're, we're South not Asian. Hindu. Yes, we're South Asian. <laughs> we, are, we are spiritual, but not religious. Right. That kind of a thing. Right. Or we identify with our specific gurus that we follow or different movements, but there's just an aversion towards the term Hindu. And part of it, that is the, some of the historical baggage, the legal baggage. So for example, Ramakrishna Mission, could not call itself Hindu, not because it didn't want to, but because there were just embedded biases and uh, discrimination against Hindu institutions in the law in India. So it was better off being a non-Hindu institution. You know, when the when Kripal's uh, uh, Kali's Child came out mm -hmm. against Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, uh, prominent swamis of the Ramakrishna Mission in the Boston area refused to come back, come out in the public and respond to it. Mm. So they would privately give me the information and I would keep writing it out in the, so in the internet, in, in blogs and articles, you know, but it took a, quite a lot of persuasion and many months later for them to start writing publicly, which they did mm -hmm. eventually, I'm glad. But we had to pull them out to face it. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first reaction of a lot of our clergy, a lot of our, pre, uh, our acharyas is to avoid the problem. They, they just don't, because they're not equipped to, uh, they don't want confrontation. Mm -hmm. I can see that that's not their training. But, you know, we do have a training of debate, aggressive debate from Adi Shankara onwards, mm -hmm. and even before Adi Shankara. Mm -hmm. So that debate of Purva Paksha, where you face the opponent, you understand what they are saying, you give them the Uttar Paksha, is part of our tradition. Mm -hmm. And Arth Shastra, which is the, 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 the whole dialectic and the whole theory, the whole dharma of uh, politics and society and all that, is part of our tradition. Yes, absolutely. Mahabharata is part of our tradition. Yes. So these are not things that we can walk away from and say, oh, we're just spiritual, we withdraw and all that. That, that is a very incomplete presentation of Hinduism. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I think our most important work is not in how we get others to see Hinduism, but how we get us to see, to see ourselves and to really embrace uh, the Hindu identity, not in a chauvinistic way, but in a positive way, and to be confident in ourselves. Because ultimately, when, when we have self-respect, then others will, will respect us. And I want to say that Aditi is modest, but I will say it for her. She has a very, very top corporate job in one of the largest uh, corporations, largest multinationals, in a very senior capacity, leading their legal team. Uh, and she projects her identity in the corporate world and it hasn't affected you adversely. So you can project that. People should be encouraged. Your, your role model is one that says you can project your identity in the public space and in your corporate world and, and not be afraid that it's going to affect you adversely. Right. And not only has it not hurt, it's actually been a positive in, in terms of you know, being different. Like I said, I wear, I wear my bindi and then you know, uh, a few years ago, we had a large town hall on diversity and interfaith diversity, and I was actually the only employee to speak on it about my experience being uh, a Hindu American in, in the workplace. And I think uh, when you have that confidence in, your, in yourself, then people, people also feel that. And people, we shouldn't underestimate, I think, uh, especially the American culture, which is very multicultural, it's very pluralistic. And they're very people open, are very open. respectful yeah. and open. It's, it's, I think, when we blame others, Actually, it's our own lack of courage yes. and our own ignorance and our own complexes. Yes. And then we project on others that, oh, they won't let me do this. But actually, you'd be surprised. In the United States, my experience has been, if you know yourself and you have your facts 
and you are, are going out to the white American mainstream, mm -hmm. they're quite respectful. They're very open. Absolutely. They, they have no problem understanding all of this, but they won't do it for you. You have to present yourself a certain way, do some arguing, convincing, uh, turn them around. People are very open-minded. Absolutely. And actually, what's interesting, so in the past few years, I've gone through lots of leadership trainings. And what study after study has found is the most important quality when it comes to leadership is authenticity. So when you bring your real self into the workplace and people know when you say something, you mean what you say, or you're being transparent. And I think a lot of that is just being free to be how we are uh, in, in, inside. So for example, there's a lot of networking that happens, but I don't drink, I don't eat meat. And that's never kept me from anything. In fact, it, it opens interesting dialogues and discussions with people who want to learn about uh, your culture, your, your religion, and things like that. So I think actually bringing your true self uh, not only does it not hurt you, but it's, it, it helps you and is really important. Because you're an honest person. People can trust you. Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't have to be like you. We're not forcing it on them. Right. But they can say that's what the mutual respect is all about. Right, absolutely. So uh, one final point I want to make is uh, we discussed all the good things that have happened in the last 15, 20 years in this movement. But I have some concerns also that a whole lot of people have just spawned lots of little organizations, mm -hmm. fragmented uh, the movement the resources that could be all put together to mm -hmm. make a big impact get diluted because everybody starts their own little movement. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to come up with a name and then come up with a banner and have three or four people on some advisory thing and then go out raising, talking about the same stuff that mm -hmm. we're talking. Uh, this, is, this is a problem of uh, uh, not being able to organize mm -hmm. in a large scale. Uh, and everybody wanting to be their own leader. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, you have experienced that also, that there are some of these organizations that are yes. not delivering, they are over-promising, under-delivering, right. and accumulating a large amount of the resources, financial resources, right. funding resources. What do you say about that? I mean, what do we do about that? Because as long as we keep splitting, uh, splintering internally amongst ourselves, we'll never get anything done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think part of it is, a lot of them lack long-term vision. So it's, it's just reacting to something that's out there now, but having no long-term vision for 10 years from now, 20 years from now, how to make uh, impactful change. And I think when our community gives money to, like when we give money to politicians, we just look for a photo op. We don't hold, uh, we don't hold them to account. So also I think the Hindu community has not been holding organizations and leaders to account. To say if you if you fundraise a few million dollars from from the community, which, which several of these organizations do, but then what have you produced with yeah, that? They should look for what have you produced promises for the future. Everybody can make. Right. Like you can just copy paste and make promises for the future. Right. What is your track record? What have you already done? Yes. And they should ask what is what's the output right. and what's the impact it made. Right. And and if you if you don't have that, you wouldn't invest in as a venture funder. Right. You wouldn't invest in a venture, in startups that have no track record, right. that have one failure after another. Yes. I mean, startup, get some funds, then disband, then start up another one. A lot of these people are doing that. They just keep going from one uh, startup Hindu organization yes. to another. Yes. Same guys, they uh, come together. and th so, so this spreads mediocrity. Yes. So it means that all you need to do is talk nicely, go to some events and make a big speech and make a tall claim about what you'll accomplish, but you're not held accountable. Right. So this is, this is our problem. And what is really unfortunate is then when you do have people uh, like yourself, like others, who question that you know, you've been out, you've, this organization's been around for a few years, but you haven't produced this, or they actually are selling out, and they're being co-opted, and they're actually hurting the Hindu agenda. 
then there will be other people who say, oh, but they're nice people, we're friends with them, we, ha we have them over for dinner, why are you hurting them? It becomes this kind of social this cronyism, yeah. instead of actually holding them to account for what they, when they purport to say that they represent the Hindu community, but are actually hurting the Hindu community, they should be called to, to account for I that. I think it, it's sad when our people evaluate Hindu leaders based on personality and being a nice guy yes. and, and very pleasant, rather than actual output and impact and performance. Right. Yet, uh, our people are very savvy when it comes to their own business. They would not uh, do a deal with somebody just because he's a nice guy. Yes. I mean, they would do a deal based on what is the actual terms, what are you going to perform, what have you performed, what are your capabilities. Right. That due diligence right. of track record is very important, yes. both for outsiders and for insiders before you fund them. Right. And many conservative organizations, or like the NRA, other organizations, they actually have report cards on con members in Congress in terms of how their voting uh, record actually matches up to what, what the, uh, the agenda or the mission is for these different organizations. So they are very objective criteria for holding uh, congressmen, representatives to, to account. And we really need to start doing that for our organizations yes. and leaderships. That this is the agenda of what we want five years from now, 10 years from now. These are the specific items. And, and they have this to be is how measurable. they performed, yes. They have to be measurable outputs. Yes. Good. So we work together on all this. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank Wonderful you. For, to, for you to be here and uh, uh, grace our uh, series of uh, discussions and, and, you know, investigative reports. Uh, now I think we'll, we'll uh, start this academic, uh, this uh, Hindu Phobia conference series in India. We'll start working on it as a 2018 project. Well, thank you for having me. And I also want to say, um, you know, it's been almost 15 years that we've been, we've been working together and you've really been uh, like, a, like a mentor and, and a guru for me in terms of how to, how to engage with Hindus, how to be in the public sphere, be principled and, and really uh, never waver from that. So you're really an inspiration to me and I very And I want, uh, I want you to know that you've always been there to help me out in whatever situation and you continue helping us in many ways, uh, ideologically, uh, psychologically, concrete ways, financially, in all ways you've been there for us and we're very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Namaste. Thank you.